Welcome back to the St. Paul's Morning Report podcast. I'm Daniel Ennis, and I'm joined by co-hosts, Drs. Barry Chan, Steph Oye, and Gerald DeRosa. How is everyone? Good, Danny. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm glad to have three co-hosts on this episode, because we have uh, Dr. Josh Budlovsky from the island presenting, and maybe I'll ask Josh to uh, introduce himself. Great. Well, uh, first, thanks for having me here. Uh, I'm Josh Budlovsky. I'm a geriatrician uh, living and working here on uh, Vancouver Island. I did my training in Vancouver with the UBC group, both for internal medicine and for geriatric medicine, and then have been in Victoria on the island since 2018. And, and I've been a... listening to this podcast for <laughs> a few years now. <laughs> Thank you. And And as someone who trained a year or two behind you, I can say that you were as notoriously nice as you were brilliant. So we're really uh, delighted to have you on the show. Thanks for uh, preparing a case for us. That, um, what I that assume is, totally... is constipation and osteoporosis. <laughs> you know, that's, that's an not... incontinence. <laughs> that's right. you're, you're, you're so kind, uh, Danny. That was not at all my experience meeting Josh. I met Josh when he was, I think, a second year medical student. And Correct. I was doing an education fellowship, and I tutored him in the problem-based learning block of, I don't know, I don't even remember which block it was. And this kid was full of beans. My God. He was ornery, <laughs> and he was a know-it-all, and and then he turns into the most lovely person to work with. But boy, oh boy, as a second-year student, what a handful. Ah, oh, yikes. I still have nightmares from those sessions. Don't get me started on PBL stuff. That is a that is a dark chapter. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're we're really excited for the case, and uh, we're we're really thrilled to have <clears throat> you. So maybe we'll uh, we'll hand it over to you and uh, see what you got. Great. Well, uh, I'll I'll jump right in and just as an FYI, as I was saying, it's been a while since I've presented uh, sort of a formal evening report. Uh, so if I've got some paper shuffling, it's because I don't know as much as I would like to. Anyway, so I'm going to jump right in with a case that uh, I saw. So uh, his name is Mr. B.H. He's a 60-year-old man who initially presented in January 2019 to the outpatient clinic with a referral for rapid cognitive decline. His past medical history was significant only for a recent diagnosis of type 2 diabetes with an A1C of 9.1% in December of 2018, without any history of micro or macrovascular disease. And he was started on metformin in December of 2018, 500 milligrams twice daily. That's his only medication at the time. And prior to this, he was felt to be entirely healthy and in his usual state of health. Up until the summer of 2018, when his wife had noticed that he was getting a little bit more stressed, a bit more upset, she felt this was likely due to some job stress, and in particular, she noted that he was having some angry outbursts and a shorter fuse than he previously did. Then at the end of November of 2018, Mr. B took some vacation, and at the start of the vacation, one of Mr. B's co-workers called his wife and said they were worried about him. They said he was irritable, he was repeating himself, and there was a considerable change in his personality. So it's now the beginning of December, and his wife again is noting more angry outbursts and also some difficulty with short-term memory. He'd repeat himself, ask repeated questions that he'd recently asked. Then there were a couple of times when his wife noticed he seemed confused. He mentioned, when are we going to the airport, uh, even though nobody was coming into town. And they watched a movie, and he mentioned to his wife that that actor that they were just looking at had recently been in their house, which she thought was very strange. There were some further examples of poor memory, such as the fact that he had to change his PIN number on his card three times in the three weeks prior to me seeing him. Um, and he couldn't do his online banking. And neither he nor his wife noticed any significant apraxia or expressive aphasia, although his wife did note that he would trail off more than previously. Uh, no visual-spatial disorientation, there was some difficulty with organization. Uh, he'd always been a very organized guy, but 
when his wife looked at his the finances, that she noted that in the past couple of months, he'd missed a couple of bills. If it's okay, I'll just keep going a little bit more and uh, then I'll stop. He, he did note that he had a slightly low mood. Uh, he felt less happy and less satisfied, but denied frank depression or anxiety. There were no issues with uh, oral fixation, hypersexuality, lack of empathy, disinhibition, no hallucinations or delusions. No motor symptoms, although his wife noted that he perhaps was a little bit more twitchy or uh, she'd walk into a room and say something and he'd sort of jump. Uh, no signs of REM sleep disorder or other autonomic symptoms. Very quickly, his social history is that he was born in Victoria. He has a university level of education and has been married to his wife for over 30 years. They have two adult children who are well and he drinks about three glasses of alcohol a week, no marijuana, no other recreational drugs. And he's working as a department manager, a position he'd held for over 25 years. So that's that's the history up front. Uh, would you like me to continue with some of the cognitive testing or physical exam, or should I pause? Maybe we, let's, let's pause let's there pause and just there. see if anyone, yeah, let's see if anyone yeah. has any um, ideas or, or any kind of framework uh, at this stage. Uh, anyone want to pipe in any thoughts just off the bat? I think just to clarify a few more things with Josh. So Josh's long-term memory was well-preserved. That was not an issue. Correct. In fact, okay. uh, we chatted about his elementary school and he could recall names and events clearly in the long term. Okay. And he's a manager of what type of business? Is there any history of like chemical exposure? And are there any occupations that he may have had at a younger age that may have been different than, uh, you know, his current job? Great question. He actually worked uh, in a laundry facility, although he he only worked in a managerial uh, role there. But yes, he, he was working in uh, laundry services. Hey, Josh, I just want to clarify the timeline. I think I did not hear it quite cor- correctly for myself. It's, it's all started in autumn of uh, 2018. Correct. Or somewhere around there and then progressed on. And when did this person present to you? January. So I saw him January, the beginning of January 2019. Okay. This was about three months ish. Anything ringing a bell for you guys? You know, Gerald, you asked some um, pretty precise questions there. Is there something that was on your mind there, or what were you trying to interrogate? Um, I don't have anything with specificity, but, you know, it's such a broad differential right now when you think about someone who's manifesting these type of symptoms, right? And I know back in the past, uh, sometimes there is a key differentiation is your preservation of your long-term memory versus your short-term memory and recall, right, is in some progressive cause of dementia. And then I think like, because we're in a morning report podcast and you presume that that might be some unusual diagnosis, (laughs) then I'm trying to hunt a little bit. And, you know, go into the things like, you know, strange exposures in the past. Um, You know, I'd ask about travel history, uh, weird infections, things like that, just because there's a little bit of a bias here that I'm expecting it's not going to end up being, uh, you know, early Alzheimer's dementia or something like that, right? So so I'm hunting for zebras already, I guess, is uh, what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's uh that that's interesting, right? We're we're assuming there's something strange here because it's a morning report podcast. There probably is something strange. I'm wondering, and Barry, I'll get to you in a second. I'm just um I'm curious if um Josh had specifically mentioned the startle response. Does that strike you two, uh, sorry, you three, as specific, or is that kind of the same way that uh, you know as people age, they start to get some of their old reflexes? you know, they're, they're more like neonatal reflexes back. Is this like of a piece with that? Or is that actually a specific thing? This points to a part of the brain. Does that ring a bell? Barry? Oh, I, that I do not know. A particular part of your frontal lobes, as you'd be thinking of for any of the release signs. But when I heard Josh mentioned that, he said he's twitchy. And then sometimes when you enter into him, he just startles and he jumps. It, uh, it made me actually think of the startle sign in, uh, in a prion disease the Khrushchev Yakov disease where you just go in and you suddenly make a clap sound and they get these jerks. Mm, actually, that's interesting. what it made me think of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How about any, like, does any of these particular mood disturbances, so increased stress, uh, increased irritability, angry, like are, are any of those things of 
particular relevance or do you kind of roll that into well that's kind of maybe normal in someone who's starting to struggle with daily activities as part of an evolving let, let's say like someone's developing dementia and they're struggling are these like normal emotional responses or are these specific in some way as well is that ringing any bells for anyone for me no i you know i, I don't really think about it yeah. i think uh Sometimes you look at what parts of the brain control what things, right? Mm-hmm. And some parts of your brain control, like your ability to control your emotions and stuff. I think what Josh answered with some specificity is we always think about, you know, frontal lobe symptomatology. And he said very clearly there wasn't things like disinhibition and things like that, right? Which would kind of suggest more of a frontal lobe lesion. Yeah, but it, it does get a little challenging because they can get frustrated when they start to you know, when patients start to note that they are not their usual self and then they're, so how much of that is response to the disease versus part of the uh, pathology is sometimes hard to sort out initially. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So just before we turn back over to Josh, Steph, did you have any thoughts on the initial points in the case? Uh, no intelligent thoughts. Um, <laughs> we I accept mean, all, all here- comers. Yeah, I mean, hearing hearing the initial description, the first thought that popped into my head was like frontotemporal dementia, but then I thought, he's not going to bring that here, and then I thought <laughs> Wernicke's encephalopathy, and then uh, he's not much of a drinker, nutritionally he sounds okay, and then the thought of like sort of weird and wonderful, but I, I just don't think we have enough here. It's, it's pretty bad, um, obviously. Is there any, you know, the only sort of weird flag or, or thing that I'm sort of highlighting for investigation later on is this twitching. And I, I don't even know if that's a, a real clue or not, but everything else here just sounds like other cases of, of rapidly progressive dementia that I've heard. That, that mm-hmm. part I find less easy to, to fit with the other parts. Yeah. And I, I guess like, just like, what Barry Casson would definitely say here is like, oh, we got to go into the social history and ask about, and uh, Joe was getting at some of this too, but like any unusual hobbies, any weird exposures, like does he mm-hmm. use weird chemicals? Is he a hatter uh, or whatever? Like, you know, like does he do something unusual in his spare time that is so different than what the rest of us would do? Does he game, you know, hunt big games, stuff like that? And I think that's about all the Barry Casson I can uh, harness right now. Um, so Josh, maybe we'll turn back over to you. Maybe you can answer a couple of those the questions posed and uh, and carry on with the case. Absolutely. So uh, I'll start with uh, the Barry Tasson uh, questions. <laughs> uh, he is a Caucasian gentleman who does not have a history of significant travel in the preceding five to ten years. In fact, he seems to lead a pretty uh, typical, uh, some would say, existence. Uh, he does not, you know, particularly enjoy the outdoors. He doesn't have any unusual hobbies, carry or care for birds. Um, no sexual contact outside of his primary relationship that we heard about at all. Uh, other than the laundry exposure, and even then, when I pressed him on that question, he does not spend significant time in the workings of the facility. As mentioned, he works primarily in management, although he does go down on occasion. Um, so I'll keep going, because this case does take a bit of time to evolve, but I think it's interesting. Uh, so when I first met him, uh, his I did a cognitive test with a MOCA uh, with him, which is a more challenging exam than a basic MMSE, and often is helpful for identifying mild cognitive impairment as more executive dysfunction or signs of test for executive function. So his MOCA score was 22 out of 30. He lost one point on trails, so you connect a number and a letter in ascending order. He lost one point in serial sevens. In verbal fluency, he could only name four words in one minute, and he lost all five points on delayed recall. So I went on and did a physical exam with him. His blood pressure was 170 over 85 while lying flat, and fell to 137 over 81 withstanding. His pupils were equally reactive to light. Extracular movements were full in all directions. He had normal smooth pursuits. He had normal saccadic eye movements. No signs of nystagmus. I did note a slight muscle twitch or myoclonus in the left lower eyelid, which may have been blepharospasm, but the patient and his wife hadn't noticed that previously. 
palate was midline, no fasciculations in the tongue. The strength was five out of five in the upper and lower extremities. There were no signs of cog wheeling. They had no resting tremor, no asterixis, no pronator drift. Reflexes were uh, symmetric bilaterally. He had a negative Romberg and a normal gait. He had a negative startle reflex. Uh, Barry had asked about the startle reflex. It was negative. He also had a negative glabellar tap, as well as a negative snout reflex. Uh, when I saw him, he had had some basic blood work done, including a normal CBC. His electrolyte showed a slightly low sodium of 132, creatinine of 57. TSH was normal, B12 was normal, syphilis was negative, LFTs were normal, and hemoglobin A1C was 9.1. A CT scan was done just five days prior to me seeing him at the very start of January, and it showed uh, minimal small vessel ischemic changes and no other significant abnormality. Any, I'll just pause there. Any other thoughts now that we've sort of completed the initial meeting of this gentleman? Anything I guess my that, comment, and you know, Josh, this is your area of expertise more than ours, of course, is the initial MOCA score. And for the listeners, you know, some of them may not be as familiar with that, but a score of 22 in a previously high-functioning six-year-old gentleman uh, is surprisingly low, I would say, and concerning. I don't know what your, you know, do you have ranges or? Absolutely. So I, I agree. A MOCA score of 22 in a university-educated uh, individual who's been working is is surprisingly low. A normal MOCA is higher than 26. Typically, we think of a mild cognitive impairment uh, being in the range of like 21, 22 to 26. Then looking at a mild dementia between sort of like 16 or 17 to 21, 22 in that range. And then below that, to be honest, the MOCA score is not particularly helpful because you get a bit of a floor effect of it. Uh, so once you're into more of a moderate dementia, we often switch testing just to further differentiate. But yes, yeah. so much lower than expected. Right. And I'm contextualizing it, as you were saying, in the, as to his previous level of functioning as a manager <clears throat> of people and, you know, having to organize many different things, right? So could, could I just make a quick comment there? Please. For sure. So the way that Josh uh, reported that MOCA, I think, is really, really helpful. And, and so this is something that I, I see sort of done weirdly by a lot of people. So he's given us the score and the score is one thing, but he's also specifically told us where the patient has lost uh, points. So the fluency is really bad. Like you've, you've all done MOCAs many times to sit there for a minute and watch a patient only spout four words that start with the letter F is very weird. Like I don't think I've ever seen someone with a fluency that low. That's, that's remarkable. And then the delayed recall zero out of five, that's not as rare. I don't think, but it's pretty bad. And so I think what I want to know here, uh, I'm going to play the role of audience member because I'm, again, I'm not an expert in this area is, is, are those useful clues to you, Josh? Would you see that, like, very poor fluency and very poor delayed recall? Are, are you kind of, does that ring any bells immediately, or does that help you generate any new hypotheses about the case? Are, is, that, is that specific content failure important to you? Oh, the, absolutely. The, I, I say this to patients all the time. It's, it's not the number you get. It's looking for a pattern. Of, are you having... All your difficulties in short-term recall, which would be, say, more classic for Alzheimer's, or is it executive dysfunction? Is it visual-spatial, which you might think more of a Parkinson's or Parkinson's-related uh, disease? Is it, you know, verbal fluency, which would make you think maybe a frontotemporal variant? So in his case, the strong amnestic uh, piece, along with a bit of attention and maybe some language deficits, may be in keeping with an Alzheimer's, but he does lose points sort of globally in different areas. It does seem to be, at least when I did the test, more amnestic than others. Um, so, for example, he lost one point in the trails, but was able to do the clock drawing, both of which are testing executive function. The fact that he got zero out of five on delayed recall was, was quite pronounced, uh, as you point out. And sorry, Denny. My only other comment here is like it's so weird. This the the progression is so quick that stopping at a CT seems unlikely, right? He's a sixty year old man. So so while an MRI was not sort of listed in the preliminary investigations, this is a rare case where I would say like almost certainly this guy's getting an MRI um, 
quite early on in his workup, if this patient came to my office, I would be sending them on to a cognitive cognitive specialist of some sort, but I would be ordering an MRI like on the first visit. I'm curious if anyone has, is is interested in the drop in blood pressure, um, if that feature points to a specific disorder for you folks. Like, I, when I saw that, I think that's, well, that one is very objective, it's quite real. You have an, most, if he's not hypovolemic, then he probably have autonomic dysfunction. So if it is, you can ask for other questions like erectile dysfunction, sweating, etc., but let's just say if it is autonomic dysfunction, then it could, A, could be the diabetes has been long-standing, and then diabetes, some degree of vascular dementia type of feature there, but it wouldn't, it's just way too fast, so that doesn't make much sense. You can have um, multi-system atrophy, but it's also, again, the, the cognition part is just not happening way too fast and early. Parkinson's, you can have that, but he doesn't have any Parkinsonian features. Mm. I don't really know how to fit them all together. Like, you know, if we're going down, like, the early onset uh, Alzheimer's dementia and, or, or, or mimics of that, I guess one of the things that is relevant that we didn't ask about was a family history. You know, is there a family history of early Alzheimer's? Because um, I believe there are some genetic causes or genetic variants, right, in the uh, in, in these cases, so... Absolutely, Gerald. I'm glad you brought that up. So there are a couple of genes associated with early onset Alzheimer's, and these are the types of patients that you might think about it in, you know, people in their late 40s, often 50s or, or early 60s. And he's, sorry, uh, Steph, I'm not sure if I heard you correctly. When you were saying that he is 66 years old. So he is young for, for geriatric, um, or at least for what I typically do. There is no significant uh, family history of dementia or cognitive impairment. In particular, there's no history of Huntington's, ALS, Parkinson's, or early onset dementia. Uh, he has two sisters. He is the middle of, of those three. And his other two sisters are well. His older sister does have diabetes. So, uh, Steph, you've mentioned that an MRI is going to be an essential part of workup. I'm curious if from like a, a general internal perspective, we'll, we'll get Josh's take on this too. I'm curious when this would be someone that you would do an LP or like looking for, you know, inflammatory disease in the CNS. Uh, do you do you wait to see what the MRI shows first? Or is this someone you'd be like rapidly progressive, you know, cognitive decline, admit to hospital for expedited workup? Like how, how are you going to actually work this up in the community? And we're all in kind of, uh, you know, slightly different uh, clinical settings. So I'm curious uh, how you do that. Uh, like on Salt Spring, Steph, what, what would you do exactly? Yeah, it's such a good question. Um, Thank you. And I Thank think, you. In, <laughs> you know, you sort of have to be there in the room with the patient to sort of uh, discern how sick they are and how urgent this thing seems. I can tell you that, you know, when I was a resident and I would either be in the outpatient department or you know, seeing a patient admitted to a, a medical ward with a presentation like this, they would get an LP. And now I can also tell you that in the last, you know, 14 or 15 years that I've been in practice, I've never done that. I've never taken a patient from the outpatient department and have them admitted urgently to a hospital for an expedited workup. And I've never sort of been the one to pull the trigger on an LP. And I'm not sure what that's about, whether that's my practice has gotten crappier over time or whether the, the, sort of approach to this thing has changed over time or whether I've just farmed out these cases to either neurology or geriatrics. I'm not, I'm not actually sure, but this used to for sure be part of the early workup for rapidly progressive dementia. And, and it sounds like this guy probably will, will get that. Mm -hmm. Danny, if I can comment on that, just being yeah, someone please. who's practiced for, I don't want to say how long, cause it <laughs> says how old I am, but <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I think Steph is right. Things have evolved and things have evolved because of the pressure of the system, right? A lot of times when I was a resident student and this was, uh, okay, I will say it, it's like 20 years ago or more, you would bring this patient in, right? There were some, you know, beds were available. Theoretically, you'd bring the patient in, you could coordinate their care really quickly, right? I mean, you do your LP, you do your send it off for some stuff, you do your MRI, 
uh, and you do all the battery tests that we love to do as internists, right? And then you might not keep them in the hospital for a prolonged period of time, but you, you know, you might discharge them to follow up very quickly in an outpatient setting. I think that that is, that is difficult now because, you know, of the state of the situation and, you know, there are not a lot of empty beds. The hospitals are quite full. And so, um, I think you're judicious about when you do that, but, we still do that, right? But sometimes you need a little bit more prompting to do that. So, you know, in the scenarios that I have, when I when I really feel it's concerning, I do kind of, you know, do a quick phone call to a cognitive specialist, whether that be a geriatrician or a neurologist, and I just kind of run the case by them, right? And I say, hey, like, this is what I'm dealing with. Um, and sometimes they will say, like, we should bring them in, right? We should bring them in for a short admission, work them up properly because you invasive procedures are tough to expedite you can kind of beg borrow and steal an mri you know when you need to but like you know you got to put needle in this person's back and where are you going to do that i know that systems are evolving to try and develop rapid access processes where you can do that but they don't exist very well fleshed out right now so you know i think then at least you have the ammunition of like you know i'm a kidney specialist really and a general internist you know, I'm not a cognitive specialist, but then at least when I when I can justify like, okay, the the people where this feels their expertise are saying this is unusual, atypical, and it probably does require, you know, expedited uh, investigations, um, you know, because it, you're always balancing. It's tough as, as the patient's primary caregiver, you know, you, you want to do what's best for your patient, but there is a limitation of resources, right? So it's always kind of that difficult balance. Yeah. Uh, Steph, you have uh, another thought there? Just a quick comment on this idea of expedited investigation. I mean, I think it really, it's the kind of thing that you would pursue because it's, it's effortful to, to get someone worked up urgently for something. You would pursue it if you have anything that you're worried about where the treatment is time sensitive. So like, for example, I'm not in the business of admitting someone urgently to the hospital for um, a workup for Huntington's Korea or ALS because those things don't have any treatment. So I, if I miss them, it's not the end of the world. Obviously, the patient wants to have a diagnosis and closure, but for something like this, like, yeah, what if it's uh, encephalitis or I don't know. I mean, I don't even know that that's on the differential diagnosis here. I'm totally lost. But um, if it is, if, 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 if autoimmune encephalitis is on the list here, which I don't know if it is, or a perineoplastic process, then uh, this patient needs urgent workup where where maybe days or weeks are going to matter. And so this is a case where, where I think that might make sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Fantastic point. Agree yeah. 100%. Yeah. I love it. Steph. All right. I'm, I'm going to jump in, in fact, just because I I agree entirely. And, and I think as this case evolves, we'll be able to come back to some of those thoughts and, and maybe flush some of that out. So I will say when I saw this gentleman in the clinic, and what uh, Barry picked up on with the startle reflex and what I may have noticed a mild uh, myoclonus around the eye, this rapid progression of both neuropsychiatric symptoms. He was a, you know, a different guy than his wife had married before. And he can't do things like he's a manager and he can't log into his online banking. I thought these were unusual and concerning. The idea of admitting to the hospital crossed my mind, but I didn't feel at that point I had enough to go on. And so what I did is I ordered a bunch of blood work um, just to repeat some blood work, including some more of the sort of unusual things, like I ordered a ceruloplasmum, a copper level, uh, an HIV, an ANA, just to make sure that I'm not missing something funny. But I also ordered an urgent MRI and EEG. And the thing that I want to just highlight, at least for working in Victoria, but I think it's the same in Vancouver, I called the radiologist and said, hey, I need this. And the MRI was done two weeks later. It's maybe not, I don't know the day of the week that I saw him, but that was pretty quick. It was within, you know, about 10 days. And so I felt that that was, you know, good enough uh, given uh, the circumstance. So I ordered an MRI and an EEG to start along with those that blood work. And so the MRI comes back. And it's normal. It shows some mild, small vessel ischemic changes, uh, typical for patients' age. Nothing. It was a non-contrast study. Uh, I was wondering, but nothing stood out uh, of significance. 
An EEG was done then the following week, and it showed some mild abnormalities. I'm not an EEGologist, so all those squiggly lines are a bit Greek to me, but I rely on the uh, neurologist who commented that there was some mild abnormalities in the bifrontal areas and right temporal region, which were considered nonspecific, but may be seen in encephalopathies, neurodegenerative conditions, as well as delirium. So it's one of those, like, the EG isn't entirely normal, but it doesn't tell us much. So at that point, I was sort of like, well, there's something going on. You know, the EG isn't totally normal, but the MRI didn't show anything. So I ordered an LP, um, exactly as you're saying. And again, I asked for this to be done urgently. So the LP was done February 8th, um, which is exactly, I think, one month prior to or after I saw him having gotten those other two exams. And the LP results came back with uh, no red cells, three white cells, a glucose that was slightly elevated at 6.1, and a protein that was slightly elevated at 0.53. Oligoclonal bands were not done. The CSF was sent for culture and sensitivities. It was negative. We sent it for the viral serologies, uh, which were all negative. And I also sent it for 14.33 protein, which is... What was previously done, they've now slightly changed the assay looking for Kutzfeldt-Jakob, but that's neither here nor there. But the 1433 came back two weeks later as negative. So not in keeping with Kutzfeldt-Jakob. So that's, that's where my initial investigations, I will point out that the blood work HIV seroloplasmin was normal, HIV was negative, ANA was uh, non-reactive. All of the blood work that I repeated as well, including liver enzymes, were all normal. Any further thoughts? What do you think about the performance characteristics of a non-contrast MRI in this setting? So this case, the reason I'm presenting it is this case has changed my practice. In this case, I think that a contrast-enhanced MRI may have been helpful, but typically I continue to order a non-contrast MRI unless one has a high degree of suspicion uh, about either a perineoplastic syndro- syndrome, a uh, leptomeningeal enhancement, or if one is thinking about uh, a, like a limbic encephalitis. Yeah, so as a first pass, the non-contrast MRI, I think, makes sense. Right. But then you've done all these other things. The EEG is a bit weird. There's three white cells in the LP with no red cells. I don't know. Um, is, would it then be the next move to order a contrast MRI? Yeah. I, I'm Sorry, go ahead, uh, Gerald. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I was going to ask, um, just in terms of the CSF analysis, um, was, I mean, this was years ago, right? I find that, that we are jumping towards sending off mitogen panels nowadays with presentations like this where you don't know what's going on and you're kind of lost. So I don't know if that was considered or done or maybe because it was five years ago, it's not as much in practice as it is now, but certainly seems to be part of the compliment when you get into this kind of zone where you're not hitting anything positive. You know, you do the mitogen panels. I've never kind of understand what the oligoclonal bands do, but the neurologists always ask you to do that, you know, send up (laughs) oligoclonal bands and mitogen panel. And then you wait like for a very, very long time for the mitogen panel. But it would be something that now, you know, uh, I would think about doing if this was an inpatient they were under me. And then, like Steph said, uh, you know, I, I, non-contrast scans are limited. They're usually what we do initially, but I agree. Usually you start to then probe what kind of imaging could pick up subtle um, subtle conditions um, that were missing. You know, the people that I find really helpful in this, just as a plug for anyone who's kind of trying to work these patients up, is actually a neuroradiologist. Yeah, those, those people are phenomenal, and we have a couple in our hospital. And if I, well, a, I, I go to them to review the scans over again, um, and occasionally they have picked up things that I, that the, their colleague, who's obviously it's not their area of expertise, um, has uh, did not very subtle things that they can sometimes pick up and give you a clue, and they can sometimes give you a differential, <laughs> um, and then they can also say, well, if if you know, we, we so far only have this scan and this scan, you know, there are some obscure things. If you did this scan, for example, MRI with gadolinium, you know, different phases, different, you know, like PET scan, when would that come in? You know, things like that. So, um, so that's what I would say if I had that patient 
under my care in the hospital setting. Yeah. Another thing that um, mm-hmm. I, I totally agree, asking the subspecialty radiologist for a, a consult on the available imaging is everything. Like it helps so much even to orient you to things that may be outside of your partic- your personal wheelhouse that they know about because those are the things that they're specifically looking for and commenting on. Um, and that goes for MSK or vascular and, and neuro for sure. I think one thing that I would do based on the investigations we have is also just hit the books and check out like what's the what really is the sensitivity of the 1433 assay because you know I, like hey like i haven't diagnosed any prion diseases but you know my recollection is that like sometimes you you have to do a brain biopsy and so then i'd be like okay well we, we did a test and it's negative but like is that negative and and it's perfect like we we can rule that out um, the same way you can with like, you know, maybe a normal ceruloplasmin, maybe you can truly rule out the disease. Is the 1433 assay enough? Has it supplanted other tests? So that would be kind of based on what we have available right now, something that would be on, on my mind. Uh, Barry, anything that uh, that struck you that you wanted to add? Uh, no, no, in particular, I think I said it all. I think um, with regards to the MRI thing, I, I, I would get rid of contrast. It's because it's hard enough to get these people to scan. If they're going into the scanner, they don't have bad renal dysfunction. I'm just going to add it on just to get it all done in one go, especially when things are progressing that fast. Makes sense. All right. So, Josh, what uh, what unfolded? Yeah. So, I, I followed up with the patient following the LP. And in that interval time, the family noticed increasing behaviors. He was more aggressive. He was more short-tempered. He got to some physical aggression. He pushed her at one point. He sprayed her with a cleaning spray at one point when he was frustrated, raising his voice. And his wife says to me, like, this is not my husband. And so at this point, you know, the MRI was was nothing showed. Uh, You know, the EEG was like, okay, maybe there's some underlying neurodegenerative process. The CSF, other than a very slightly elevated protein, was pretty banal. And so I began to think less about, you know, limbic encephalitis, Kruzlov-Jakob, those types of things. It was more like, is this a funny FTD, frontotemporal dementia? Because of, I mean, it's really a lot of personality and the cognitive side. But I'm hearing more and more from the family about that. So at that point, what I decided to do was send him for neuropsych testing to see if that would be helpful. Uh, because we do some tests, right? We did the MOCA and some of us do some other minor tests in the clinic, but neuropsych testing takes a couple of hours and they go through batteries of tests and they can be really helpful in these funny cases that you're not getting far at identifying what the issue is. I also asked for a SPECT scan, which can help with identifying, you know, a frontotemporal pattern versus an Alzheimer's pattern. Largely because in BC, we don't have availability of PET scanners. Uh, I think if I had had the availability of a PET scanner, I would have asked for that. I guess, you know, when it's not clear what's going on, I mean, I still go back to like just your basic approach and go, you know, infectious, inflammatory, right? Like all those sort of things, right? And you'd think that infiltrative, right? And you'd think that if it was infiltrative, you'd pick up something on the imaging to cause this much abnormalities you'd think that if they had vasculitis or an autoimmune thing you'd have some blood work that was abnormal once again that would result in these abnormalities and infection seems less likely the white count is not there so you start to think about well what kind of things can you not really diagnose by conventional means right and you start to think about like um like things that are occurring at the cellular level that you're never going to pick up um, with labs imaging or things like that um, I think about things like uh, toxidrome, stuff like that, go back to things like that. And I'd like maybe look at the CBC and the smear and just make sure that all the cellularities look okay, you know, because you can get subtle things like that. I remember having a patient present with uh, aluminum toxicity. They, uh, not in the exact same manner, but they were boiling all their food in, uh, in old aluminum pots and stuff like that. And we had to chelate them, uh, you know, so you kind of remember rare you know, uh, causes like that. And then, you know, ultimately at some point, you know, as you think about, you know, uh, you always think about, well, at some point you have to get tissue, right? And do you, do you have to like 
actually get a, a, a biopsy of some brain tissue and and send off. But you know, I I feel like at all these things I'm like t- the tissue guy. <laughs> you know, it's the nephron. I'm like, let's just get some <laughs> tissue and try and figure it out. <laughs> Seems like that's a recurring theme for me, Danny. I don't know, but um, <laughs> yeah. I, Steph, what do you think? What's on your mind? For those of you playing at home, that's 32 minutes and 30 seconds, and Gerald as the first person to ask for tissue. Um, I'm sure there's a, a, a pool of who who's going to do it and when they're going to do it. So that was 32 yeah. minutes, 30 seconds, and Gerald DeRosa for the win. I, you know, I, I think that we often come down to that because we feel like it's it's often useful in these weird cases. I think this one is one where you would probably talk to the geriatrician or or maybe a dementia specialist neurologist and be like, is this weird enough? Like, you tell me when it's time to, you know, get neurosurge on the phone and get the tissue. Because if you tell me like, no, 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 this is a, you know, this is a pattern of a certain type of dementia, and it does this, and it's fast and has these features. All right, like, then we won't do it. But like, uh, I, I just want this is a, a little bit of this is for everyone, every listener to know in case I ever get admitted to hospital, do the brain, <laughs> do the brain biopsy on me, go for it. <laughs> Find out what's going on. Pulse me with steroids. (laughs) Go for it. But Danny, Danny, you make a good point. And I mean, I'm not saying I would rush into it right now. What what I'm saying is when you ask the specialist, you have to know what you're asking them. I always Mm -hmm. tell my team, right? You have to know what you want to know. You can't just say, solve this for me, right? And so, yeah, I, I would go to them and say, you know, what other investigations are available? You know, I've heard of people and very rarely have we done brain biopsies. Are we, as Danny's saying, are we at that stage yet? You know, what have what have I, what have we missed? You know, uh, what are your thoughts? Because you're you're right. Like you need to talk to someone who's seen way more of these than I have, right? Uh, you know, that's in their wheelhouse, so that they can designate atypical from typical. Because really, you're doing a brain biopsy in a very very small minority of people. I mean, I I mean, I don't do as much CTU as as some of you, right? Um, but like. In 20 years, I, I don't think I've done it less than a handful of times, right? So it's not something that you're ordering on a routine basis for sure. So, mm-hmm. Okay. Well, uh, Josh, what, what next? So the spec scan comes back as entirely normal. Um, right? right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, I get the spec scan back as read as normal. And I'm looking at this guy going, something isn't right. And I'm still waiting on neuropsych testing because God knows... I have no ins in that department, but I did do part of my fellowship at the UBC Alzheimer's Clinic, and so I wanted another opinion. I talked to, I brought this case up at some rounds. The imaging, there was, so we talked about this in the imaging rounds. There was nothing to, to talk about uh, that anybody noted of, of significance. So I sent him off to the UBC Alzheimer's Clinic, and unfortunately, he was seen at the UBC Alzheimer's Clinic one week prior to the neuropsych testing being done. But I'm going to sort of fast forward a little bit because there's there's more and this podcast can't end that late. So the, he goes to UBC clinic and he's seen by one of the experts in dementia who says this looks like Alzheimer's dementia with predominantly frontal features. They said, I want to see the neuropsych testing. When it comes back, I'll follow up with them. And that that's the report that I get back. One week later, I get the neuropsych testing back. And the neuropsych testing, you get these multiple page reports, but just to read the one highlighting line, it says, overall, Mr. H's neuropsychological assessment today are consistent with Alzheimer's disease, given the learning memory issues noted on testing. Uh, Mr. H's presentation is somewhat unusual given the rapid decline, as well as behavioral features, some of which may be consistent with a frontotemporal dementia it would be helpful to repeat neuropsychological testing in one year's time. Boo. So, <laughs> right? And yeah. that's the end of the podcast. Good night, guys. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Josh. Uh, really nice having you on the show. <laughs> yeah. um, so why, yeah. why why is this? Why did you boo? Like, uh, I, I booed. But, like, why in your clinic when you got these reports did you look at that and say, like, no, like, there's something beyond this. Like, you had an expert review the case, hear the timeline, and say, this could be... Alzheimer's, you have the psych, you know, the testing that you asked for. It's at Alzheimer's. Yes, there's some, you know, not everything fits perfectly, but that's the best explanation. Like, what, what was going through your head that made you say, like, no thanks, that's just not quite right. 
So, I mean, one of the things that I really like about your podcast, and in particular, Barry, who's on it, you know, points out often that, you know, sometimes it's the generalist uh, who's looking at the big picture can really, you know, it's really helpful to get a second opinion. Of course, that's why you ask nephrology. That's why you ask ID. But, you know, if you're a hammer, everything's a nail. And this, I mean, uh, Alzheimer's pays my mortgage. <laughs> and this didn't sit right with me. I was like, this is funny. This, it, it, okay, you know, I didn't have anything to go with. And to be honest, where this case is going is I sat down with him following these reports and said, the best that I can do right here, right now, is that this is an atypical presentation of Alzheimer's and that we need a tincture of time to get a bit more because in every place that I'm turning to look for, you know, is there something weird and wonderful, I'm being brought back to, you know, Josh, there's not much else to look at. It felt uncomfortable, uh, but I had the conversation with this patient that this is an atypical uh, presentation of Alzheimer's. It didn't sit right, uh, and the podcast is not over. But yeah, it, it was frustrating. But I think you make a good point, Josh. Sometimes the the disease is subtle and will progress. And then when you get other manifestations, it helps you, you know, clinch or, or go more towards another diagnosis. So, you know, it's a frustrating thing. But, you know, we all have that sometimes where you say, well, let's just wait and see how this case, this thing evolves, right? And I think as long as you're following the patient relatively closely, then hopefully you can kind of pick up the next set of stages. And I think that it's a testament to not just giving up on the patient and just saying, you know, okay, well, that's what everyone's saying. Like, you know, this is what you got and there's not much I can do for it. So, you know, mm-hmm. it is what it is, right? So, yeah, that's great. I also feel like, uh, you know, when I'm seeing someone for like, not, not the same type of case, but where I'm like, if there was just one more thing, like we could solve this, like if there was a rash or there was a, you know, an eye thing, or um, we could get there because then it would like, you know, we have these two symptoms that are really, really abnormal, but it's just really, it's too broad a differential. It's not getting us there. One more thing would really get us there. I, I think like there's, there's that piece where it's like time, something is going to happen. We just need to wait to see what it is. But also at the same time, like, geez, am I a real specialist if I need them to have like the full form of the diagnosis for me to like figure it out? Like, shouldn't I be able to get it a, a little earlier than literally everyone else who puts it into Google? But sometimes no, like sometimes it it's just no, it's not possible. An AI couldn't solve it. Um, I can't solve it. Um, a smarter doctor than me couldn't. Like, we need more. Um, and that can be really frustrating to, to wait on, I, I find. I think one of the things, too, if we're going to, we don't have Barry Cass in here, but, you know, is to go back and really go over the information that you had, right? I mean, we still do have a gentleman who has diabetes with an A1C of 9.8. You still have a gentleman whose blood pressure sitting was 170 over 85. And you have still have small vessel ischemic changes on um, imaging of the brain, right? So, I mean, my, my question is, did we optimize those risk factors in the interim, you know, as we were going along? Uh, you know, I do know that sometimes vascular, you know, they, they say vascular dementia can mimic, you know, other forms of dementia. So that'd be one of my questions. Or just bring us back to remember he, he does have some legitimate chronic uh, disease, right? So. Mm-hmm. Steph had something that he wanted to say before. I don't know, Steph, if you want to or if I should jump back in. No, I was just going to sort of reflect for a second on this unsettled feeling that you keep sort of coming back to. You're saying like, no, this isn't right. This doesn't fit. And I'm, I know Danny feels this often. We've talked about it. Like there's something missing here. I'm not happy. And and I think, you know, the the maybe the area that I've gotten the best at in the last 15 years, it's not my understanding of evidence-based medicine. It's not my, you know, it's time efficiency. It's my intuition. My intuition has gotten way better in the last 15 years than it was 15 years ago. And that's happened just with experience, with seeing more patients and having more varied experiences. So this patient is not, you, you have not reached the threshold of diagnostic closure. And I think you just have to sort of say that out loud. And, and I would encourage people to have some kind of system where they say, 
they, they sort of record their diagnostic uncertainty. So you have a list in your office. You look at every so often, you say, yeah, what did happen? What is happening with Mr. Smith? Mr. Smith, I was not so sure about that. And so I'm going to go and, and have a look at Mr. Smith's things, or I'm going to call Mr. Smith. And, and as long as you're doing that, I don't think you're going to miss too many of these, but it's the point where you, you sort of say, I'm not sure, but I've got this expert telling me that it's something very banal or something very common. I've got this other expert that's saying it's very common, so I should just give up. Don't give up on those cases. If you feel in your heart of hearts that something is being missed, then record that name somewhere and don't give up. Don't give up until you feel that either you've done everything you can or you feel the case is actually solved. Totally. And that, so I'm going to, I'm going to jump back in. I sort of feel like remember Steve Jobs used to be like, but wait, there's more. Uh, (laughs) And you're waiting for that uh, one more thing, Danny. So I see this gentleman. I have the conversation that this is, this is what I've got right now, but we're just going to have to give it a bit of time. And the patient says, okay, you know, things have really changed over the last now, like five months. I'm going to make the best of the time that I have because God knows how much time I have. I'm going to go on a road trip back east to see my family. So the plan is for him to go with his family to, to see some family back east and then come back and I'm going to follow up with them. And he goes on this trip and it goes terribly. He can't manage the driving. He's very discombobulated. He's confused. He's not recognizing family members. And they cut the trip short. He returns home on a Monday and on the Tuesday, he has a tonic-clonic seizure. Um, never had a witness tonic-clonic seizure before. Wife calls 911 and he goes to the emergency department. His sodium at this point is 127. So if you remember before, it was very slightly low at 132. Now it's 127. They do a CT scan of his head, which is read again as normal. In discussion with neurology, they start him on lamotrigine and do not admit him beyond the emergency department. Oh, oh, they, they, they start that in Emerge and then they send him home. See you later. That was started in no Emerge. No way. No way. Yeah. Come on. I mean, um, like, th- th- like, like when you're describing this, this situation of rap, like seizure was the thing we were all kind of waiting for. It's like, well, if this guy had a seizure, then everyone would jump on it as clearly outside of Alzheimer's. It's something else. It's something very sinister. And we're going to admit it to hospital and we'll work it up. It like this one that that's kind of a bit of a it's a big whiff, right? Like <laughs> they had the clue and uh, they uh, oh that sucks that sucks. I mean, so what what I will say in defense is that we do know that neurodegenerative conditions do lower one seizure's threshold. So in advanced Alzheimer's, as an example, um, seizures are not terribly uncommon, you know. But this is. End-stage Alzheimer's. These are often people that are nonverbal. These are people right. that are often, you know, they, they cannot ambulate or walk. So I agree, I mean, the, with you completely. <laughs> this is only, but... it's only six months later, right? Like, to go from no Alzheimer's to all the Alzheimer's in the whole world <laughs> all at once is, um, like, it, it's unbelievable. Um, and uh, so, like, that's that's disturbing. Uh, very disturbing. Gerald, what's, what's up? Well... I mean, you know where I'm going to go with this because I'm a nephrologist, right? (laughs) Biopsy of kidneys, yeah. No, well, the hyponatremia, right? But I mean, I always used to get accused of hijacking one of your part and and turning into something about the kidney. Um, But, you know, I I do think without going into a long, I'm sure that's not the purpose here to go into hyponatremia and the depths of that. But I mean, it is unusual to have a sodium of 127 and it might be helpful to at least do some preliminary investigations to see if, you know, what the etiology may be, right? Because, you know, um, if the ADH is upregulated, then, you know, and he looks euvolemic, is it a perineoplastic thing, right? So it might be some clue to that. Um, you know, it could well be attributed to poor um, solute intake and things like that. So it would be nice to at least kind of investigate. I mean, I presume he's not on a thiazide diuretic or anything that would be a classic cause of hyponatremia. So at 127, if you have, if you're not taking any medications, it is something that merits some investigation could link into the problem. What do you think, Steph? Isn't it also true though that you like pump out some ADH right when you have a seizure? Like, like yes, he needs a sodium workup, but not in the hours after his seizure. Yeah, I think that's quite fair. You would want to give it some time to 
go back to physiologic normality. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I get the report from Emerge and I get a phone call from the patient's wife. And I said, you know, this is, this is weird. At the very least, we need a repeat MRI and an EEG. And I again asked for this to be done on an expedited basis. This is on a Thursday. On the Sunday, uh, I get another, or the patient has another seizure. Witnessed tonic-clonic seizure, brought into the emergency department. And again, there is a neurology consult that says he has an outpatient MRI or ordered urgently. I think that this is all in keeping with the previous diagnosis of Alzheimer's, and he is sent home. This is on Lamotrigine. <laughs> on Lamotrigine. Correct. Come on, man. Come on. <laughs> this is a this is a real this is a real case. I mean, I, I know that there's always the retrospectoscope, but I mean, I I do think the majority of the panel here is going to say seizure on Lamotrigine. Let's admit the patient. So just to be clear, if you're listening to this, bring that patient in, please. Yeah, like also oh another God. another like way that I would think about it is like if Emerge or Neuro came over to the internal medicine call room and I was an R2 or R3 on call and they told me about this case, I wouldn't, I'd be like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That like, like I wouldn't be like, ah, oh, come on, but he has an MRI scheduled for two weeks from now. Ah, oh, come on, man. Like I would see that patient uh, happily. What do you think, Steph? The way I think about this is, um, you know, when you read a clinical problem solving case in the New England Journal, you know, the patient goes to some shitty hospital in the country and they're, and they're just, you know, they're discharged and whatever. And they go to some other crappy hospital. And then they came to MGH and they were in the hospital for 24 hours and they figured out this very uh, complicated diagnosis. What I tell trainees is like, don't be the first hospital. Try to be MGH, you know, if you can. Yeah. 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 I'm like, obviously like, it, it, just for just to make sure this is always stated, we are never trying to dunk on other specialists. You know, we weren't there. We we do get the retrospectoscope, but um, we also take care of some very sick and very complicated patients between all of us. And um, if this was your family member, would you want them sent home on lamotrigine, or would you want them after their second seizure to maybe stay in hospital for you know? tuning up and, and evaluating what's going on, I think 99.9% .9 of listeners would agree, please admit my mom um, to make sure that nothing terrible is happening. That was that would be the care I'd want for a well, family member or a friend. Yeah. And further to that, Daniel, even if you're not a physician, right, I always approach these things logically. Uh, like if I was the family member, I'd be like, okay, well, wait a sec. They had a seizure on the medication you are using. You are sending them home. How do I know that they're not going to have a seizure again in short order and be extremely ill with something that I can't handle? And if they ask me that question, as a, even if they're like, it's just a logical question, I would say, you are completely right. Like, at least if they had said, and I'm, you know, like, okay, we're adding in Dilantin, you know, we're changing you to this, blah, blah, you know, like, maybe that was an effective drug. We still think it's a, could I buy that? But like to... You know, I do find sometimes there is that, and you do sometimes have the logical family member who checks you and says, but wait a sec, that doesn't really make any sense, right? Like, yeah. I, you know, just, like, just yeah. you know, without any medical background whatsoever. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm not happy with that. And, and, yeah, and I'm bothered be by very that. Valid. Oh, okay. Yeah, it would be, <laughs> be very valid in this situation. Yeah, yeah absolutely. The poor wife. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Josh, like, what, what, uh, totally. what went down? So I, and then this, he was again, fine this happened on, forever. on Sunday. Yeah, and he had Alzheimer's and passed away peacefully. Um, <laughs> no, I get the, a call on Monday from his wife, who is is in shambles because this happened again yesterday, and he went home. And I, I did exactly what you guys are saying to do. I said, "You are going back to the emergency room today, and you're getting admitted. You can get admitted under me or under the house service, which is typically done uh, here in Victoria." And this is like, please call me from the emergency department so that I can be there and I can order some of the tests that I think you need, which include a stat MRI, an urgent EEG, some weird and wonderful blood work, including a mitogen panel, as well as a repeat LP. Uh, and so that happened. Uh, so they, he presented to the emergency department that day. And the EEG was done the following day. It was normal. 
the MRI was done, and it shows asymmetric high T2 and flare signal in the mesiotemporal lobes. This is nonspecific, but typically seen in infectious encephalopathies, also seen in autoimmune and anti-NMDA encephalopathies. It can also be seen in the context of recent seizure. So I'll, I'll sort of progress the case, uh, just because this ended up being quite a prolonged hospitalization. The LP showed elevated protein at 0.65, uh, otherwise was, was banal again. And his mitogen ca- panel came back about 10 days later, which was positive for anti-LG1 limbic encephalitis, uh, which is one of the uh, autoantibodies against voltage-gated potassium channels. Uh, he was treated with IVIG for five days and uh, pulse steroids. And interestingly, this is not so much the part of the case that I think is relevant to our podcast, but did not respond particularly well. Continued to have profound cognitive and neuropsychiatric impairment and was thus started on rituximab uh, along with the second course of IVIG, which ended up being uh, successful. Uh, he was admitted for three months, just over three months, in hospital uh, on this time and uh, amazingly uh, uh, has done remarkably well uh, uh, since then, although uh, can now drive again cannot work, but uh, cognitively has returned to, say, 85% of, of where he was. I, and I'm curious, maybe case. like almost, almost most, that's, that's incredible. Um, almost most importantly, like, did his behavior and did his personality uh, return to near normal? Like, is he himself again? Just like he, not as sharp around the edges, but still himself? He is himself again, which is amazing. And so the the, the thing that I've taken away from this case, and the reason why it's changed my practice is exactly as Dr. DeRosa mentions, like I've started ordering mitogen panels much earlier in these unusual cases. Uh, this is, you know, uh, about four years ago, and, and at least here that they were not done particularly frequently. And without an MRI, you know, showing the, the mesiotemporal lobe sort of lighting up are not routinely done. But but that's one thing that, excuse me, certainly has really changed my practice. And I've wondered for a long time about had we, had I, or we, caught this earlier, what would the, you know, course have been, would he have improved more quickly, been able to return to work, uh, and has been, you know, it, it's always really stuck with me, this case, for years now, about, you know, the coulda, shoulda, wouldas in these cases that are not straightforward and in which, you know, the retrospectoscope exactly as you guys are, are pointing out can be a dangerous tool because you think of like, should I have paid more attention at that time to X, Y, and Z? Anyway, it's, it's been a real learning case for me. And like I say, it's changed my, my practice. Yeah. What, what do you guys think? Any, uh, what are, where's, give me the lessons here that you take away. I mean, we always have challenging cases that we always apply the retrospect scope. I would say, though, like 2018, I think you're, Josh is right, though. Like, we only did mitogen panels if you had rationalization and justification, right? So it is hard to apply current practice to remote practice, right? And, uh, but there are things that you will see that will, that will, uh, kind of, change your pattern of practice and they should as you go forward um i would say if i if i was to look at this you know just as an outside observer not having looked at the patient which we are right now i mean i I'd, I'd say that uh, a lot of things were done by josh that were you know like getting a second opinion right i mean that's you know i always tell people you cannot be uh so proud that you don't ask for help right and so you know getting a second opinion not giving up you know, advocating for the patient, you know, if we're going to drive these things home, this is a good illustration of that, right? Where he very easily could have been labeled with Alzheimer's, early Alzheimer's dementia, left on his own, and he would have deteriorated quite considerably without therapy, and he probably wouldn't be with us today, right? So, you know, I think it is a testament to perseverance and also uh, commitment to the patient, right? To like, keep in touch. Sometimes that is the only thing you can do is say, I'm unsettled, as Steph said, 
I'm going to keep an eye on you. We're going to keep seeing each other every few months. And if something else comes up that helps me make a better, di- you know, a more specific diagnosis, I'm, I'm going to, mm-hmm. you know, when it comes up, I'm going to pursue it. Right. So a uh, very fascinating case. Thank you. It was really neurologic stuff always gives me pause. <laughs> but, uh, it's great to go through. Hey, what do you think? I think, um, like, the biggest lesson I took out of this is again the just the approach to this dementia again. But limbic encephalitis is not like the first time I've heard it or seen it. I've seen it maybe you see it like once a year or maybe once one, one to two years. Like it's not comes rare, but it just struck me is it's still like how how low is it in my differential? Like it doesn't even spring up when I hear the story. It's not even one of the first things I would think of, or even this late in this stage it just tells me again that the best i can do as probably as a, and as a generalist is to rapidly rule out the things that are the most common and get help with these really 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 uncommon things and the second thing about the mitogen panel i think that's the reason why it's sent out so quickly now i think even for when we consult the neurologist for these cases it's not like they see it that often as well i find they just shoot it out. I was just dealing with a case with a rapid onset behavioral change and the neurologist asked me I was on a procedural team to do an LP and send for these 20 tests and and I'm not sure why but maybe it's just becoming a lot cheaper or to is for one thing I think it's just easier to access it in some ways than it was in the past like even when I was training but um also, it's just the differential now is so much wider than before. There's diseases just, I have no idea what they're talking about. Or they were diseases in the past, but now they have identified some sort of antibody or something or various ones for the same disease. I, I definitely like this is the sort of case that makes me scared of clinical diagnoses, right? Where, you know, there isn't, like, you do not have to do the truly exhaustive rule out to come up with the diagnosis. And of course, that's kind of a heuristic that we require so that we do not end up brain biopsying every single person who has normal Alzheimer's disease, which would be huge morbidity and cost, right? So we need tools to not do every test, but it definitely, you know, the diagnoses where, you know, we're supposed to just use our minds to know what's happening inside someone's biology is a bit frightening. It's almost too much. It's a bit too much power in some cases. Sometimes totally appropriate, but I think it's important to kind of, or at least for me, to know when to dial that in um, and to always stay humble because every time I make a clinical diagnosis that's not supported by every biopsy, every CT scan, whatever, uh, blood tests, um, I am injecting a little bit of chaos, a bit of uncertainty into that person's diagnosis, and we accept that, but it's it's definitely something that we need to kind of be aware of, uh, that we are by doing that, we are going to get some wrong and have that gut instinct for when to kind of know the difference. So uh, I really appreciate the case. Steph, any final words before we wrap up? No, that was a good summary, Danny. Thanks for presenting that, Josh. I mean, it's a reminder that medicine is really hard. You were junior staff at the time, and you asked for help from lots of people. You were tenacious, and it took a while, but... Um, good for you for, for getting it over the finish line. Like, I think a less tenacious totally. geriatrician would have abandoned this case long before you did. Totally. Josh, yeah. thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Um, thank you. I'm thrilled that uh, I got to be uh, chatting with you guys. So <laughs> thanks again. Come back. <laughs> Come back anytime. <laughs> All right. So we'll leave it there for now. Uh, signing off on behalf of everyone. Uh, Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the St. Paul's Morning Report podcast. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone.